This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. So one of the more remarkable things that you can possibly study, possibly experience in the world, at least for me, are the painted Ice Age caves of France and Spain. The big three are that people usually talk about are uh, Chauvet and Lascaux in France and Altamira in Spain. But there are uh, dozens of others. Uh, that are worth looking at as well, but those are the three most documented as far as I'm aware. Uh, nowadays, I think the earliest artwork that has been dated to these places uh, might even go back as far as 40,000 years ago, and uh, the most quote-unquote recent of them is about uh, 15,000 BCE or so. Uh, if you haven't looked at this artwork, I would just pause this or forget about this episode entirely and just go and look them up on Wikipedia. Just search for Lascaux or Chauvet or Altamira or find um, Werner Herzog's documentary Cave of Forgotten Dreams from I think 2011 or 2012 or so. One of the interesting things about all of this is that since their discovery, since the discovery of these caves in the late which began in the late 19th century, is that uh, people can't go to visit them anymore. Uh, the mythologist, Joseph Campbell, told the story of driving down to, I believe, Lascaux in the 50s or 60s and being able to go inside. But the temperature changes, this is the same thing with uh, certain museums as well these days, or uh, certain uh, chapels with uh, delicate frescoes on the walls, uh, the temperature changes that that uh, a constant traffic of people bring in began to deteriorate the walls of these caves, and so uh, people are not allowed in them other than scholars. Um, and I assume that uh, since Werner Herzog was allowed in to film uh, Chauvet, I believe, uh, exceptions can be made, but for the rest of us, there are a number of uh, number of huge books, lavishly illustrated, and uh, and there is just the articles on Wikipedia, which have wonderful photographs of the caves as well. Now, um, for the longest time, I wanted to write something about them, a poem about them, and when I came around to writing the poems in Bone Antler Stone, I saw my opportunity. Uh, these caves are remarkable places, not only because they show human beings painting animals and painting them in amazingly naturalistic, realistic ways, and also at times appearing to paint them in motion. Um, there's also uh, they also 
paint hand stencils. So you have the idea of uh, these people, you can put your hand where their hand was. And it's remarkable just to think of a person standing there and blowing paint over their hand and taking it away. And there is their handprint, uh, a stencil on the wall. Um, it's hard to even talk about what, uh, what possibly, what this artwork could possibly mean. And of course, many people would not even want to call it artwork in the way that we refer to art today at all. Uh, many of the theories uh, to explain why human beings who probably lived on the edge of survival much of the time, why they would have expended so much energy uh, creating these pictures. Uh, many of the answers haven't stood the test of time, or at least it's become obvious that one answer will not do. If you're talking about uh, the span of time between 40,000 and 15,000 BCE, and you're talking about uh, uh, a geographic extent of uh, mostly the western coast of Europe, but I'm pretty sure uh, further inland as well, uh, there simply can't be only one reason why people went into caves and painted them. But some of the uh, some of the more common explanations were that they were used for uh, sort of adolescent rituals, uh, uh, initiating young boys into adulthood. There was the idea that uh, the animals were painted as a form of uh, sympathetic, sympathetic hunting magic, so that you would paint the animal that you wanted to hunt and kill. And by doing that, you would somehow capture them on the wall and you would have success in the literal hunt. Uh, as I said, these theories don't hold for every cave and or, or for every situation. Uh, there's also the idea that they were used for uh, communal, simple communal settings. But then you have, in some caves, the paintings are close to the entrance and some of them they are far back. In some cases, I've seen uh, the animals that are featured on the cave walls are actually animals that uh, the people who were living then would not have eaten. So it wasn't a matter, at least in this case, of hunting magic at all. And in some cases, it's said that they are, uh, the animals are shown when they are most fertile. And so that if there is an idea of magic at all, it is almost the beginning of a recognition of uh, fertility, of expressing fertility and then wanting to express it yourself with your own body in a human community as well as an animal community, since the lives of both were so intertwined when it came to uh, survival. Uh, the other idea is simply the, the techniques that were involved. Uh, you can look through some of these books and see the uh, uh, see the lamps that were used. You can find um, evidence just of uh, where charcoal uh, or where uh, where intense uh, uh, torchlight was uh, blown against a wall, and the evidence of that is still there. There's evidence of children's footprints uh, in the ground. Uh, that are still uh, 
I guess now you would almost think of them being uh, baked into the ground, and you can see where the children would have walked. There's evidence of animals being there before and after humans were there. Uh, there there's so much stuff going on here that is just miraculous, and it is from so many, many thousands of years ago. Uh, there's an apocryphal story of Picasso being led into uh, one of these caves, I guess in the 1930s or so. This probably never happened. Both archaeologists and art, history, art historians have said this probably never happened, but the, the lesson of it uh, is true enough. Picasso was supposed to have gone in and seen the paintings of these animals and come out and said, we haven't learned very much since then. Um, so to get back to the poem at hand, I, I just wanted to give a, a sense of what uh, this subject means to me. And for those who don't know uh, much about it, uh, a sense of what it could mean to them too. Uh, I've said before that the writing of poetry feels um, like a, a whole lot of luck. It almost feels like you are being given the uh, the task of breaking into a bank and stealing as much money as you can. Very rarely will you actually get out. Uh, very rarely will you end up with what you intended to go in with. Very often the poem you start will not work and it won't go anywhere. Um, so that if you do finish a poem, and if you do finish a poem of any length, it, it feels like you can breathe again. You've caught your breath, you've done it, and you feel lucky to have found the words for what you have wanted to say. And with Bone Antler Stone, there were many famous sites, especially Stonehenge, I think I mentioned in the last episode, where I simply could not write a poem about it. But I was able to write a, uh, a three-page poem. It's really a collection of one, two, of, of seven smaller poems called Chauvet, Lascaux, Altamira. And I've always been pretty happy with these, that they, that they got out, that I got them and grabbed them, if you, if you want to take the hunting metaphor, that I caught them. Um, and as with what I've said just now, I don't stick with any one theory of what these paintings, what these pictures could possibly mean, uh, or of one theory of how they were made. Um, there's another, uh, there's a poem here about uh, the idea that while the painting was going on, while the flickering lamps were going on the walls, that people may have been playing music. Uh, they have bird bone flutes from the time, and uh, uh, playing uh, some sort of drums on the stalactites. Uh, there's the idea of that as well. And I sort of bring all of them in into these seven little fragments. And I will try to read them here. It says, Now we come to paint with light and fire. There is no violence on the walls, no pursuit or danger. There are no landscapes, only waves of scraped and smoothed stone covered in intended color. There are no hunted animals here, only the ones that fill us with reverence, bestiaries of awe and galleries of envy and appreciation. 
bodies of strength and warmth depicted in their mating perfection in the midst of their multiplying. Put on the walls with scaffold and ladder, paint tubes of hollowed bone or stem, animal hair brushes with the color still loaded, smokeless bone marrow lamps and bare kneecaps filled like a bucket with pigment, with dye and daubs and splatters of stain and tincture, the flicker of fire and shadow giving them movement, these animals who mean more than food and who are so important we carve and incise and draw and paint and put them high up. Some early underworld or merely a different heaven in the dark. The caves always close to spring and river. So much of spring and pregnancy. So much flowing and identification. And this is the next fragment. He beats the stalactite with an old bone, and from it finds an old song with the flightier sound of a bird-bone flute. And to this I add my lamp and light it. The ibex scraped on its bottom begins to warm, and the fuel of burning juniper is the aroma of something other than myself. And to this light I mix my colors with cave water. I mix my colors with blood and vegetable oil. And from the sweat of the stones and the heat of my light, an animal appears beneath my hands, all surrounded by juniper green, an unforgettable song. And here is one that is about how miraculously these early painters used the cave walls where you would uh, use ripples in the walls or uh, uh, the sudden movements of the walls, uh, parts of them popping out or going back in, and you would use that to intensify the picture. This says, The rolling muscular liquid walls, rippled and erupting or hollowed, all covered in bison and bear and reindeer, and lion and rhino and horse and ibex, bodies with no earth line as if in flight, rising out of the rock, blurred legs of ash smudged by a passing hand, or a horse's head outlined forever into the soft white wall, as an afterthought with the butt end of a torch. And the next fragment. There is cave darkness without torchlight, cave dim and silence, cave drip and echo, but also fire black from the charcoal hearth, dark as any dark from the well-fed flames, whose glow smells of pine, and whose light illuminates the chaos of animals. Or how the ash is gathered for paint or pigment and mixed to make red or left to blacken bone or flint or wood, to draw and scrawl and incise on the wall using the color of nothing to create everything. And the next one. Now the bear is the one who understands us. And perhaps the bear was us, an older form of human, and how it stands on its legs some long ancestor 
preferring to sleep for a season over any of our toil, desiring the direct mystery of life over our chosen mystery of mind. No bear painted us, but we painted them. No bear thought to prop up or set our skulls on slabs or in niches or on ledges, but this is what we did for them in deep veneration of their nerve and endurance. And indeed, an entire book could be written and probably has been written about uh, our prehistoric ancestors' veneration for bears and the idea that perhaps they thought that uh, human beings had once been bears and that maybe these caves were chosen in part because there was evidence that bears had lived there with their uh, scratchings on the walls and uh, as well as just their remains, their skulls, and that uh, the places where the paintings occur uh, in some cases were also places where these bear skulls and these bear remains were uh, venerated. And this is the next fragment. A bison made by his hands, white hands dipped in red, and palms slapped on cold rock again and again, smacked hands turned or righted or angled, and his exhausted step back to see, the animal made only of red palms and rock, red like bison's blood, stone vitality, his awe at a heartbeat behind the wall, and his hands red as a midwife's. And sort of what I was going for here with some of these, and it's indicated in the, uh, in the books about this as well, is that it, this is around the time uh, where human beings began to have music and then language and uh, a sense of what we would now call the symbolic or the metaphoric. And so it would have been meaningful. It would have been, uh, we can only imagine how meaningful, it would have been uh, uh, an almost miraculous event, you can think, that, uh, that human beings could take, uh, that they could make uh, color and pigment out of plant material, and they could use the, uh, the remains of animals, their hair or their bones, uh, they could use uh, they could use these things for paint, but also to light their lamps and to and to hold the material that was used to light their lamps. And they could use all of these things in the creation by their own hands of pictures of those same animals, and you begin to have that circular uh, way of thinking of symbolism and metaphor and of creation. Uh, and, and what does it mean to be able to, and this is, a, this, is this last poem was a, uh, is, a, is something that is actually found on one of the walls. It is just a bison shape made by one person slapping their hands on the walls covered in uh, red pigment over and over again, and they made it that way. What a remarkable thing to think to do. As Picasso said, we haven't really gone much further than that in all that time. And 
it's hard not to feel uh, a burst of emotion or affection or just to feel uh, something romantic about these people, uh, that they were the first people to feel these things and uh, the, the kind of emotions and perceptions that would have gone through their minds uh, at the start of our ability to express, not to express this or that thing, but to express anything creatively. It's a remarkable, a remarkable idea. And this last fragment uh, of this poem is about the bears again, the idea of uh, coming into the caves and finding uh, that bears have already scraped at the walls. And do you paint a bear over top of those scrapings and the rest of that? And you begin to think again of the uh, the reverence you feel for animals and the reverence you feel for nature and also a burgeoning idea of what what an early idea what an early conception of uh, divinity might be and humanity's place or reaction or stance uh, in the midst of divinity this is the very last of these poems did the bears who tore at this wall to sharpen their claws, did the bears who did this know of the bison whose head would take shape from their scraping? And do the bison we make in our heads know how the bears help to make them, the bear and the bison, all bits of each other, and all of them in our minds, until splashed on the wall with understanding? Who put the impulse of making in my hands, and who keeps us all under such watch? Who is it that knows before me what I and the bear and the bison will do? Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.